I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Emptiness Lab. Me and Tom got to chat with Dr. Matthew Johnson. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins. And he has research uh, in a lot of different areas related to human behavior, addiction, delayed discounting, sexual risk behavior. But specifically, he's one of the leading researchers in the field of psychedelics. And chances are if you've read any articles or books uh, citing prominent recent studies about psychedelics, Matt is one of the ones behind them many times. He's actually one of the most published researchers in the field of psychedelics. He's been in the game since 2004. Uh, he's published the first research on psychedelic treatment of tobacco, uh, part of the largest study of psilocybin in treating cancer-related depression and anxiety. So he is one of the people, the pioneers, who is going to change the world. And at the same time, he's just a really chill, laid-back guy to talk to. He has that balance between having the childlike wonder for these compounds and that scientific, skeptical mind, which was refreshing. So his perspective and take and how he explained things is, uh, uh, I, enjoy, I enjoy it. And I hope you guys enjoy this talk. Let's get into it. Let's go. You good to go, DJ? Good to go. And just a heads up, Matt, I'm going to be asking idiotic questions, and uh, Tom will be asking more philosophical and academic questions. So hopefully we balance it out. You might get better answers to the idiotic questions because then I'm <laughs> allowed to give idiotic answers. So that all Perfect. sounds good to me. <laughs> I'll feed them to you. <laughs> I'm more inclined to go that direction myself. <laughs> so Matt, welcome to the Emptiness Lab uh, podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom and DJ. So you're a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at uh, Johns Hopkins and actually involved with two different uh, research units there. Yeah, well, um, Actually, it's sort of one or a unit within a unit. So you might be referring to the, the, the psychedelic center, which is sort of within the behavioral pharmacology research unit. So, Yeah, and you, you entered this through um, experimental psychology. Could you just give us a little bit of a, a brief resume or a bit of background uh, for your about your research interests and your your sort of entry point to this research unit, right? And so my PhD is in experimental psychology, and and that can mean a lot of things. Um, basically, means I do research in the realm of psych psychology, you know, rather than focusing on treating people, 
which is clinical psychology, even though it's confusing because I do research that's relevant to treating people. That's some of my research. But I basically, I, my focus is on understanding behavior. Um, the biggest thing I've, I've focused on in that respect is understanding addiction. It's sort of the most fascinating behavioral topic there is where, you know, uh, one person's behavior is in conflict or that individual, you know, reports difficulty controlling their own behavior. So it's a, it's, it's a wonderful area. Um, not that we have any, <laughs> you know, uh, silver bullet answers, uh, to anything, uh, anything, but we're figuring some things out. But, um, so, and then on the drug side, um, I basically study the interaction very broadly interactions between drugs and behavior. And that could mean, as I already mentioned, addiction to any number of substances. And I'm more interested in the things that are in common between different forms of addiction, not, you know, what makes cocaine, you know, addiction different than tobacco, you know, different from opioid. I'm more interested in the commonalities because I, I think in the big picture, there are far more commonalities than there are differences. I think it's essentially the same thing going on um, with these different things. And, and, and so my interest in drugs and behavior also includes studying drug effects in the laboratory and, and then studying the effects of drugs on people out there in the, in the natural world when people are using them on their own. And so you know, and this spans across drug classes. So I've published research with cocaine, methamphetamine, tobacco, alcohol, caffeine, um, benzodiazepines, which are sedative uh, drugs, uh, just really spanning across all the drug classes. And, uh, and of course, psychedelics, which is the most fascinating drug class to study. Um, So I've I've uh, been involved with and and run uh, a number of studies with psychedelics over the last 16 years um, where we actually give uh, high doses, sometimes low, typically involving high doses, um, to, to people in the laboratory with appropriate safeguards. Um, and we, some of those studies are seeking uh, to see if, if, and it's mainly psilocybin, although I've worked with other compounds that are called psychedelic, like salvinorin and um, salvinorin A and dextromethorphan, but most of the work with psychedelics has been with psilocybin. Sometimes it's looking to examine psilocybin as a therapeutic, as a treatment for a disorder. And a lot of times it's just trying to understand the basic effects and, you know, in folks that aren't necessarily looking to, to beat a disorder. So that's that's about uh, that kind of sums it up. Uh, so Matt, you know, whenever I'm sent articles or, or look at studies on psychedelics, I've come to find that you're cited in a lot of them. You're uh, one of the most published uh, scientists in the psychedelic field right now, and I'm wondering how is that? Uh, first of all, how did you? get into the psychedelic field is that hard for a scientist to do uh, it seems very niche and also has all the research changed your personal view on psychedelics or was it already 
leaning uh, a certain way before you got into it? Yeah. Um, so the first question, like, uh, basically how I got, you know, how I got into this, how I got started research with this. So I, I had my interest in, in understanding you know, drugs and behavior, you know, uh, kind of goes back to my undergraduate college days. And I had gotten involved with some rat research with cocaine and, uh, and, and even back then I was, you know, I was interested in all the drugs and, but but I really envisioned even at that point that that and that psychedelics were something that I I really wanted to study. Um, I became familiar with the the older research on psychedelics and the and it was just convincing that there were promising threads there that were just left dangling. It, it was more of a political reaction. Um, the fact that research was shut down. And to be clear, there were some people that were hurt and, you know, the more reckless use in the so-called psychedelic 60s, you know, on the, on the street, whatever you want to call it. But um, it, it was always convincing that with the right safeguards that you could give, that, that you could administer these drugs to people, you know, in a safe setting with, in the right way. And that the risk profile was reasonable, you know, um, you know, it's sort of like we took the, the, the worst case scenario, you know, uh, and, and, and sort of, you know, kids taking it on their own with no supervision. And a lot of times they were fine, um, but sometimes they weren't. And taking those outcomes to, you know, tell, you know, researchers, no, you can't, you know, do research with this anymore. So I, I, I say, you know, if you're, if, if you're interested in drugs and behavior, and I'm in a, the broader field that I'm in, you can call it different things, but behavioral pharmacology is one word. Not everyone's interested in psychedelics, but I kind of think either, either you're, if you're interested in drugs and behavior, you're either interested in psychedelics or you don't know much about psychedelics because they're just, you know, they're fascinating. I mean, what other, you know, compounds uh, can you point to where people will say that using them sometimes just one time fundamentally changed their life? And, uh, you know, you look at their ancient history of sacramental use and use by indigenous cultures, you look at the countless examples of people making broad claims about positive um, impacts on their life in this culture dating back now um, many decades. And, you know, there's just obviously a lot there to study. So I, I when I started my postdoc in 2004, I found uh, that the, the researcher I was uh, about to do my postdoc with, I was actually interviewing uh, to do my postdoc at Roland Griffiths, and he uh, said he had this this small psilocybin study. It was his very first one that he had just started, and it was like top secret, you know, and sort of like, okay, can I tell you something, and can you keep a secret? <laughs> so I, I, you know, that this was the type of work that I was hoping I could have you know, done under a best case scenario, you know, in another 20 years, once I had, you know, firmly established myself with, you know, other research. So I, I just jumped head first into doing everything I could to, to help expand that research um, that he had just gotten started. And so it's been, you know, here we are 16 years later, and, you know, we've done a number of things, um, have a number of promising threads therapeutically and, and discovered some in just important things about 
what these drugs do to people um, in general. So let's see, I think that was one uh, question. And the other question has is this, uh, the, has the research changed my, my view? Well, I think, as I told you, I, I knew there was, you know, something interesting there. I, I think the, the main thing, the research really has, um, and I had to say, it's, it's probably more of, of, of the, the many people that I've, the participants that have gone through the studies, as much as the data that have, have really uh, affected me. The, you know, I, I think of the 51 cancer patients in our study where we're using psilocybin to help treat cancer patients um, deal with depression and anxiety and, and how personally they were affected and how, um, I mean, it was more dramatic than I, you know, I had high expectations and it was even more dramatic than that for so many people. And uh, so, 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 and then with, with the smoking cessation research where we're helping people quit smoking using psilocybin, I mean, some of the, you know, some of the results just, you know, I, you know, I asked myself, is this real? You know, like they, they are astonishing and it's remarkable and the stories are remarkable. And, it, but uh, I'll say that I also have a much more nuanced, I mean, a, a view of the, of the, of the safety and risk profile. Um, I mean, I always knew that there were like any powerful tool, there were um, uh, dangers and those are to be understood and not, you know, unrealistically magnified and, um, but there are some are some uh, real areas of, of concern that we can appropriately control in clinical use. But um, it is, uh, yeah, it, it's humbling how powerful these experiences are and how that can come with, you know, a plus side and 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 a downside. I mean, it's like any powerful tool, like a knife. It could be, you know, a deadly weapon, or it can save your life by pulling out that tumor if in the right context of, of surgery. In that example, Matt, Matt you talked about uh, the the behavioral side of of psychiatry uh, as being, and also the neurochemical side of 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 addiction as well as being two two sides of the same coin in many respects. And could you speak a little bit? to the way in which um, psychedelic research has, has sort of changed, like you mentioned, the early research in the 50s and 60s that was really quite prominent uh, in terms of uh, using psychedelics for, for a lot of these behavioral issues before the rug was, well, pulled out from under the feet of that kind of research. I'm wondering, is it, is it sort of, is there still two sides of uh, is there two, still two camps when it comes to psychiatry looking at addiction in terms of psychological behavior and then on the other side looking at it as, a, as more of a neurochemical sort of uh, condition to in terms of the scientific research or, or is this as you said two sides of the same coin that we should be sort of looking at in terms of a more more nuanced approach vis-a-vis um, -vis this ongoing interest in psychedelic research well i think in the for the field of psychiatry, and I'll throw in the, the the disclaimer that I'm a psychologist in a psychiatry department. So you know, I, um, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm 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 proud to be a psychologist. Uh, <laughs> nothing against psychiatrists, but I would say that, and and this isn't universal, but there's a very strong 
biological uh, reductionist bent in psychiatry. And that has really, compared to the earlier era where psychedelics were studied um, from the mid-50s through the early 70s, that biological reductionism is much stronger. It, it's more common now for a psychiatrist to spend a few minutes and, uh, you know, just determine which of the right medications to tell you to take on a daily basis, um, rather than conducting what, you know, you would call therapy, you know. Uh, so, I mean, my thoughts are that psychedelics are sort of, one of the many fascinating things about them is they're, they're, they're sort of right in the middle uh, in, in terms of this, this divide between biology or neuroscience and psychology. Um, and I'll say that my, my philosophical uh, assumption personally is that these are all just two sides of the same coin. I mean, it, it, it might be, you know, function versus form. It's like you look at a, a hunk of meat, you know, biology, and, you know, that's different than describing the actions that unfold over time. And so psychology is more about the, uh, the, the function and the, the biology is more about the form. And so it's, it's not like, is it one or the other? You know, I right. think it's like, who's responsible for the building, the architects or the, or the construction workers. I mean, it's a hundred percent both. And this is the same thing like with, you know, genetics versus environment. It's like, it's always both. It's like, there's always an, an interaction. So, so I think those are two. And, and, but I think, you know, humans, you know, we're, we're, you know, dualistic thinkers. We like to categorize things, even though there aren't, when you, even when the categorization is an oversimplification. So, you know, we tend to think one way or, or the other and say, well, is it is a psychological mechanism or is it a biological mechanism? Whereas the real question might be, you know, what are the psychological mechanisms? What are the biological mechanisms and what are their, their connections? So I think psychedelics are, they occupy a perfect place between psychology and neuroscience in the sense that clearly there's a medication there's pharmacology you're flooding your brain with chemicals that are changing the way the brain functions okay it's clearly biology but the way these things work therapeutically is not like any other uh, psychiatric medication um, it, it's clearly more like a psychotherapy um, whether or not a, a, a therapist is there I mean people talk about learning from this experience people talking about talk about gaining an insight into their functioning uh insights into how they are dealing with others how they're interfacing with the world how they're dealing with their cancer uh, diagnosis how they're dealing with their struggle with an addiction and so it really is more like the it's, it's like a medication facilitated psychotherapy um, and even people taking it on their own without without a therapeutic context. I mean, you know what? You know it sounds like what's going on a lot of times is self analysis. People come out of this saying very fascinating things. And in, in, in many cases, people think that they've been psychologically improved. And and it sounds like this sort of 
you know, it sounds like therapeutic processes that were unfolding, becoming more aware of your own motivations, you know, deeply contemplating issues that you've been afraid to look at or, or haven't been, even been aware of, those types of things. And in terms of, in terms of psychiatry, there hasn't really, it's, it's almost been a stagnant field in many respects in the last two or three decades in terms of um, possible interventions for, for severe addictions, especially. Could you talk a little bit about the way in which this reemergence of, of psychedelics in, the, in, in scientific research, especially, how has that uh, really affected the, the, the psychiatry field as a whole? Do you think, do you see sort of them crawling out from under their stone and sort of allowing for a lot more of this sort of co-narrative between the, the biological and the psychological aspects of treatment potential for, for addiction behavior? What is the role of, of psychiatry now um, in terms of yeah, these new developments? Because, you know, if we're talking about, I guess, the last real initiative that was had any sort of success was the SSRIs, wasn't it? And they're back in the, you know, in their, in their heyday, but really in the last few decades, there hasn't been too much uh, in terms of new interventions. Yeah, I think that, that, unfortunately, we're not there yet with psychiatry really being affected by this sort of, um, change in orientation that's that's the hope that i was describing earlier that this because they're kind of stuck in the middle they're going to force it this reintegration of understanding that that um you know the the that you know i think the cures are going to come largely from psychological dealing mm -hmm. with what we call psychology but you can also get at that biologically and 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 probably the best way to think about that is as, as facilitating. I mean, even the idea, even though it's, it's rarely done, like, you know, one of the, like the original idea with antidepressants is like they're best used with people that, you know, for example, are so depressed, they can't even leave the house. And so they're not even engaging in the, with the environment. Like, of course you're depressed. You're in bed all day. You're, you're not, of course you don't have any friends. You don't see anybody. Um, interesting to think about right now during the whole COVID pandemic. But but um but the idea is like okay alleviate some symptoms even through a direct biological mechanism. But then once you're getting out and 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 you're able to get out of bed and you're able to go outside, you know, join a club, you know, get to work, you know, exercise, do these things that are going to be self-sustaining. Uh, and, and so now how often is that actually really done? Does the physician really encourage that and make that the focus? Like this is going to open up a window for you and it's on you to, you know, you know, take advantage of that window. I mean, that's just not the way it's done. And there's many reasons for that. You know, one, again, we just focus on the biology. Oh, this is just supposed to make you feel better. Another one being just it, the, yeah. The, the paying system, the insurance system, for example, here in the United States where the, the doc has like five minutes to spend with you, a whole a lot of reasons. But the, uh, I don't think, psych, I mean, psychiatry is starting to pay attention to psychedelics, but I think they're, they're, it's more like, oh, look, this drug of abuse, uh, you know, seems like it could have some therapeutic effects. That's interesting. And, um, so that's good, you know, this is positive, but I don't think it's, it's really prompted that philosophical shift in, in, in how they really start our, our understanding the nature of these 
disorders. I think that's probably going to come when they're, if they are, um, and I think they will be if the data keep looking good, um, once they're in more mainstream uh, clinical use after there's approval for several indications. So it's, you know, beyond research and it's just being straight up used. And then you just start to see, you know, more regular healthcare professionals are going to see the results. And I think then it's going to hopefully have more of that shift, more of that impact. Matt, so this is an idea I, I've been thinking of as far as the context of psychedelic use and going in with a therapeutic intention versus not. I mean, I've seen positive behavioral outcomes from people just taking it in a recreational sense uh, and led in more of a either clinical or therapeutic or ceremonial. But how much does priming intention, uh, even, you know, cultural narratives, uh, personal values play a role in the behavior change in breaking addiction. Like if, mm -hmm. if you were to have a therapy session in the forties, when doctors are promoting, uh, tobacco, would you feel the need to stop? I know in one interview, you actually said people who are avid meditators, which is a lot of data. Everyone agrees that's a healthy, beneficial thing. Became less neurotic about it and actually did it a little bit less. So I'm like, is it just a biological change where these addictions and behaviors are changing? Or how much of it is, uh, I guess, um, kind of personal priorities and values? I, I think the best I could say is it, a whole lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> is due to, you know, intentions, personality, values, the larger society. I mean, just the recognition of even what's a problem. Like if you don't see smoking as a problem and if you're living in a time where it's actually like, oh, this could be good for you. It's, well, are you really suffering? If you're not, you know, um, at that point where you, I mean, I define addiction as these competing motives within the person where you tell yourself, oh, I got, I got to stop this. You know, and then at other times you're like, oh, screw it. Like, you know, it's hard to not to stop that pattern. And it's just waffling between those. If you're not waffling in there and you're not even, if you don't even see it as harmful, then it's probably not going to be something that, you know, is auto, you know, the, the, any psychedelic is not going to automatically make you want to stop, you know, smoking. And, and so that, but that relates to, um, I think, how powerful they are because it's not, you know, most uh, psychiatric medications that, that help with addiction are, so a lot of them are agonist treatments. In other words, they substitute in a safer way like methadone or buprenorphine for an opioid. Um, so you know, methadone being safer than heroin and uh, having a longer time course so you can be more functional on it and nicotine replacement therapy, like nicotine patch, nicotine gum. It's like, okay, the deadly part is actually the smoking, the nicotine you know, not so harmful. It's nowhere near, you know, the dangers of the other stuff that's in, like when you're smoking tobacco particularly. Um, and then there's other medications, uh, but they, they work, they largely work by mechanisms that, that I would say, broadly speaking, they reduce the rewarding value of the drug. They reduce craving. Um, so they sort of like quell the, the drug response in one way or another. 
and it's kind of specific to the receptor system that mediates that you know the effects of that drug you're trying to quit which is a surface level intervention i mean these things work you know there's tons of room for improvement like you know nicotine patch it might work in a study for 20 percent of the people but you know compared to 10% of the people who had a placebo patch, well, you know, you'd rather have the 20% chance than the 10% chance, but, you know, 80 to 90% of the, pe- 90% of the people aren't being helped long-term. Long so, you know, these are surface-level things. And so the, what the psychedelic does, I see, see it as a very, and this is getting to your question, like a very general mechanism. It's not that it automatically pushes people towards not wanting to use this particular drug or... Um, or even necessarily like peace, love, you know, it was written about, there's a a great book called acid dreams based on on a lot of the declassified documents from the, about the MK ultra program by the CIA. And a point was made in, in acid dreams by, by um, Lee and Shlane were the authors that, you know, when the CIA was experimenting themselves with it, you know, the, the worldview that was amplified for them under the psychedelic experience was not, the, the same worldview as, as the hippies, as the emerging counterculture, you know, what they brought to it was the cold war and, you know, from their perspective and, you know, there, there was some truth to the, you know, there was this competition between major powers in the world and one of them was going to win. And from their perspective at their side lost, that was like essentially the end of, you know, I mean, human freedom and, and, uh, I mean, it was like the fight, a fight for humanity on this planet. I mean, so that's the, that's a big picture thing. I mean, whether you agree with that or not, like the, the, the idea is like that was their perspective. And when they, and when they were tinkering and dosing each other with high doses of LSD at the CIA, they weren't by and large saying, you know, saying, oh, we just need to go, you know, you know, go give flowers to the, to the Soviets. And, you know, like, you know, it amplified their existing, you know, worldview. And so that's why I think sometimes the, the, um, I've done a bunch of research on people that um, just say they quit a substance, whether it's smoking, whether it's opioids, cocaine, even cannabis, because they had a psychedelic experience. And most of the time the people said, you know, they were just looking to party or to, you know, just to explore having an interesting experience. And then, you know, they tell them, they realize either, I don't know, they're smoking and they, they think, what the hell am I doing? And they're just like, I don't want to do this. And they stop and they don't go back. So that's an example of where it's like, it's possible for these, these things to happen without the program, without the, you know, kind of explicit focus, but that person probably had, had thoughts. I mean, look, everyone in modern society knows that smoking is not good for your health. So, you know, and that per, and we know that the data suggests that the large majority of adult smokers want to quit at some point, you know? So, you know, even if it wasn't on the front burner, they probably had thoughts of like, yes, someday I'm going to quit, you know, even if they don't, weren't putting much weight on it. So, you know, I think probably that intention is, there at some level and then i think what the psychedelic does is it affords this this cognitive flexibility this very broad way of seeing the world especially in like i like the term gestalt the idea that there is a whole often focusing on the parts does not allow you to really understand the whole 
of a process, like getting the big picture. That's what I'm saying. And, and someone, and especially your use of a drug, like you're just used to doing it every day. It's like, Oh, I'm just used to drinking, you know, whatever, a few drinks a night, no big deal, you know, and then it might become a little more. And, and you're just always kind of in that inner, like that laser, you're just focused on your, what's immediately the rough day you've had, what you're doing now. And it's almost like with the psychedelic experience, oftentimes there, there's an ability to zoom back and the person says, my God, what am I doing? I mean, it's like, it's obvious what they're, you know, that, you know, and it's probably, you know, things that they're, they've told themselves, but they kind of like, you kind of throw it in the basement and you're like, I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. That's, yeah, no, I should probably quit. I'll do it. I'll do it someday or I'll, and the same flip side, because we see reports of, of people saying, oh, God, I got to eat better. I got to start exercising. I got to treat my family you know, member better, you know, if they're having trouble. And, and it's like, you know, it's, it's uh, having that, that, you know, kind of broad perspective when one can really have this, this motivation to, to change things. So I think it's, you know, it, it, I think more of the, the, the direction of potential changes is more within, it's not in the drug, it's within the person and in society. I mean, even stuff about like psychedelics turning people onto the environment, you know, I don't think there's any direct connection between serotonin 2A receptors and, and caring about the environment. I think concern about the environment, like we live in a world where we're exposed to, you know, like, you know, almost everyone in the modern world realizes that pollution is a problem, that, you know, that, that environmental issues are a concern, that like we are dependent on this like little rock that we're all living together on. And if we screw it up, that's it. And it's another one of those got to stalt things. So it's like, it's, I, I think before, you know, if people had psychedelic experiences before we recognized there was any problem, like during the industrial revolution, we didn't realize the problems we were causing yet. I, you know, if there were psychedelic experiences, I don't think they would have lent themselves towards, and, you know, I don't think people would come out, you know, being invigorated with this, like, you know, focus to, to heal the planet. You know, it just wasn't a thing out there, you know, um, it wasn't a meme yet, <laughs> you know, and I think if that meme is out there, the psychedelic experience can help one sort of get it in a way they hadn't like more fully get it, you know. Matt, are you saying that um, these uh, plant medicines aren't speaking to people through Mother Gaia and, and the earth? <laughs> <I'm> just... <laughs> well, but... I, 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 I don't know that they I'm not saying they aren't. I'm saying I can't say that they are. That's good. But I will say that is answer. one model, and if that's the language someone has, that that works perfectly fine with this, you know. And I have some participants that use that language, and it's like it's it's important to roll with it. Like I can't prove that's not the case. Like that's, you know, could be a healthy placebo. Tap, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, one of the things that interests me the most about uh, your research is. Um, you found that it's not necessarily the dose of, say, psilocybin, uh, but it's like the profundity of the mystical experience and the meaning they derive from it that uh, leads to these changes in behavior. And I I'm wondering, I mean, it's uh, 
they're talking about non-psychedelic versions of these substances or compounds that maybe we could use a treat in the future. But is that like experiential journey really where the potential for change is taking place? Yeah, I think that experience is, and this is, this is speculation. I mean, it's educated speculation, but you know, it's all testable. So I want to test it all. uh, And I want the field to test it all. But I think the experience is going to be critical for the long-term outcomes. That said, there's some emerging neuroscience suggesting that just acutely, even in rodents, you see this neuroplast different mechanisms of neuroplasticity. It seems there's a greater ability for, you know, just cellular changes like um, synaptogenesis and dendritic branching, you know, and, and we don't know whether that those mechanisms are, are correlated to human, like no one's examined it, you know, to long-term, you know, benefits in people. My best guess is that they are, but mediated through, I, th- I think what's probably happening there, I think that's probably a biological signature of what people call the afterglow. The idea that like, okay, the next day, like, you know, they're not having a psychedelic experience, but people often say, I just feel different. Like they, there's this serenity. Like, you know, they're down from the drug, but they're not normal. And and it's usually a very positive thing. Like they feel like there's an increased sense of agency. Like you can just decide mm. decide to do something, and you're more able to actually do it. You're more able to catch yourself thinking, "Oh, I'm just reacting to this kind of through impulse or." Um, following some like a suboptimal pattern, like I can change that, you know, and I can, I can smile to this person and like maybe cheer them up rather than getting sucked down the well of that I could be dragged into because they're, they're having a problem today. What, yeah, just little example, but I think people, you know, um, we know nothing about that scientifically. What is the afterglow? So my speculation is it may be that some of these non-psychedelic analogs they look to do the same thing very early, but it looks like they can lead to the same neuroplasticity. It may be that you could model that you could have something like an afterglow. And maybe it's not the same, but maybe it's similar enough that, that causes more, gives someone that increased agency. Um, I think if there's, you know, those medications, they're not going to be ones, if, if they work, they're not going to be ones where you take it one or a few times and then you're better a year later. <laughs> I think that is the psychedelic experience. So my guess is that what's going on with the full psychedelic therapy is a double whammy. I think you're getting this huge experience that you learn from and that's kind of more akin to like a life experience. Like, visiting another culture for the first time or falling in love or, you know, these things that you say there was my life before and then there was my life after. And I can tell you how I'm different now because of that. I've changed. That was, and a lot of times those are like very difficult experiences. You know, this is the time I almost died or I lost my, my best friend in a car accident. And like, you know, and sometimes those are horrible, you know, obviously those examples are horrible, but the, you know, the person, you will say they grew from it 
and, and they matured from that. And so in the same way, I think the psychedelic experience plays that role, but there, there might be a, a place for these, you know, non-psychedelic analogs. And maybe in the best of both worlds, maybe, maybe we figure out that you have a, for those who could qualify for it and do it safely, you have a big psychedelic experience. So you're trying to quit, you know, an addiction, you have that. And then, you know, every few days or whatever the regimen is, you know, every day for the next month, you, you take this pill that doesn't make you have a psychedelic experience, but it's able to maybe keep that window open of mental flexibility. I mean, I'm all for what works. And there are some people, I mean, some people get, I don't know, you can have some zealots here. They think it's just heresy to take the, the trip out of the psychedelic. And I'm like, you know, we've got to be far more nuanced than that. Like there are some people that are dealing with schizophrenia or other things, or just, they just have like severe um, heart disease and it's just not safe to give them psilocybin. Gosh, I mean, we need more tools. I'm all for more tools in the toolbox. If we come up with a non-psychedelic, you know, analog that can help that person, that's great. You know, it's not one or the other, you know, for society. I mean, people are, are microdosing right now for that reason that it's non-perceptual. So why not? Yeah. I think if there's something to microdosing, it's, it's like what I just described. It's like the thing that's in common with the non-psycho, uh, non-psychedelic analogs. Um, we don't know. There's a big, you know, there's the few trials that looked at microdosing have, have failed to show any effect, but they've only looked at single instances in the lab and they haven't really examined the regimens that people, you know, in the real world are using. But um, yeah, yeah. One concern, by the way, with microdosing these things is that uh, these drugs, including psilocybin, do have activity at the serotonin B, 2B re receptor. And there's a concern there because... Um, Drugs like Fenfen, which was pulled from the market for causing heart valve um, problems, they they change the shape of the heart valve. They they they, um, uh, yeah. It, there's there's a hardening, and it, people die um, through this this valve pathology, and so it's well known that serotonin two B activating that receptor can lead to that problem. Multiple drugs have been pulled off the market for that. So. It, it's not a concern for, you know, a few high-dose psychedelic experiences. Um, you know, no toxicologist or pharmacologist I've ever spoken to has thought that's a realistic problem. But you start talking about taking it like once or twice a week for years, that I think people need to be, they need to check that out, you know, and just be aware of it and weigh the evidence for themselves. Um, I mean, to be clear, I'm not, and I can't, you know, like, I don't, I don't recommend people do anything. Um, uh, they take these drugs, but, you know, the fact is people do, um, some people use psychedelics, and I would encourage anyone just to be as safe as they can. Matt, it seems like there's quite a bit known about the general pharmacology of the, the classic psychedelics, at least, um, especially in terms of their yeah, as you mentioned, the, the serotonin agonist, H2A serotonin agonist, but there's very little or, or nothing known about the specific biological uh, mechanisms that actually point directly to the therapeutic e efficacy, for example, in these addiction trials um, that you have been running. And, and for me, this, this sort of 
brings me back to this point that you mentioned before about this space that's available for potential choice of, of, of the way that people perceive their reality and, and whether that's through a, through a craving or through some sort of dependency or whether that's in, in relation to some sort of loss uh, or some sort of trauma, but, but people, get, people get a choice. People get more space in which to actually see their kinds of reactions to that uh, particular dependency. Or So it seems, it seems very interesting to me that, as you say, psychedelics are sort of in this, they're in this gate, there's this gating mechanism between the, the biological and the, and the psychological, but actually they, they allow people a little bit more space, a little bit more choice. And perhaps this is the, the afterglow effect as well, which really brings the importance, the imperative of the integration process, especially uh, the, the follow-up. Could you maybe speak a little bit about the, the, the process uh, at Hopkins when it comes to these trials uh, in terms of the actual uh, follow-up procedures um, with these uh, patients involved in these trials? I mean, generally across the, the, the different trials, um, including uh, non-therapeutic uh, non trials, but to be clear, it's always therapeutic-like because there's like this strong rapport building and you're, you're supervised, you know, so even though it's, you know, it's routine and non-therapeutic trials for people to claim benefit you know so that's that's a caveat but even you know across these trials like for the most part what we call integration is just like discussion um and, and i like we need some real science around this like you know we're using the same methods they work pretty darn good but the same methods from the mid-1950s that were developed with psychedelic therapy and it's you know uh it's so it's mainly just talking which i i think my best guess is that it helps. We haven't compared it to like, you know, for example, one group gets discussion the next day and the other one, other group doesn't. Like we haven't done those studies. Like it just hasn't been the priority because we're looking at the main questions like, mm. can it help people with cancer, dealing with their depression, can it help people quit smoking? So I think that's a lot of, you know, a lot of what the future needs to hold are just the parameters of, of like, is the music necessary? like would different music be better like none of that's really been played with experimentally and now for the smoking cessation we do include in that integration period cognitive behavioral therapy for for quitting smoking and that includes things like before they before they quit we we um start to prepare them for the quit before they actually quit so you set a date several weeks ahead of time and they actually have their first session psilocybin session on their target quit date but we we go we review that content and we do things like uh, the person kind of goes over a list of what the what what they like about smoking what they don't like about smoking they um we we prepare them for um there's some good research suggesting if, if you slip and you end up having one that um dwelling and guilt over it is a really good formula for just full-on uh relapse you know so but if you catch yourself if you give yourself you treat it as a learning experience people do much better so you you remind them of that and, and you go over this type of content and you just checking in with them and ask them how they're doing with their smoking and uh, with not smoking <laughs> at that point so it's a little more formalized with the quitting smoking but for the other things including the cancer study and, and all the other healthy normal studies it's really just having a serious chat and, and that's and it can be a lighthearted chat too and often times these you know it's hilarious stuff that comes up but 
you know, you know, one thought in it that, you know, people might be exposed to these things in recreational settings. Sometimes, you know, I, I kind of think, you know, the example of someone could be at a party and they, you know, they're just taking acid or, or mushrooms for fun. And uh, they ended up in like, they find a bedroom and they're on the ground crying because they're, they're dealing with this, some issue about their, their mother or, or something, some very, very personal issue. And, and they're having this big psychological experience and like the, you know, in the, the, you know, the next day, you know, their friends, especially if it's a bunch of like guys, you know, we're like, oh man, you had too much. Like, no, only, only, only one gram for you next time, man. <laughs> like, and there's just kind of all this subtle, even if it's somewhat supportive, like there's like this subtle inclination to be like, you know, oh, you just couldn't hold your shit, you know, like, you know, just like, you're not supposed to get all emotional and be, and in fact, if you're hanging out with friends, you don't necessarily want to be the one that's the, the drama queen or king and just like take everyone else's attention like they're having an experience too and like so there's all these reasons in a social setting where one kind of you know holds their shit where they're not and they're kind of given the message afterwards like oh you were just really screwed up you know you, you had too much that time and like less for you whereas in a therapeutic setting it's like like one during the the experience it's like it's okay keep crying like this is this is perfect you know, you're thinking about your mom. That's exactly what you should be doing. We're with you. You're safe. This is this is what you should be doing. And then the next day, it's like, yeah, can you tell us about, you know, the experience you had, the thoughts you have of your mother? You know, so it's like it kind of flips the recreational scenario on its head. And I realize, like, sometimes what's, you know, recreational, like all kinds of things go on. So sometimes friends will maybe do better than we're doing you know, therapeutically, but so often that's, you know, it's probably not the norm. Yeah. And I think it's just a, it's just that paradox that's throughout time. It's the, it's the hardest thing to talk about your deepest fears and your deepest emotions. And it's also the most beautiful, beautiful thing and the most profound experience afterwards, especially when you, when you know that you're held in that space of, of, of love and of, of, of comfort and that you're not going to be judged for your, for your expression as well. And I think, yeah, the work that DJ and I are doing with, with the emptiness project is, is revolves around holding that space for people to actually experience and express their emotions, their feelings, their sensitivities, their sensations, no matter how they appear. And I think just that matter of fact of having awareness that that is an essential part of, of of the human condition is to be seen and to be heard and and to allow different spaces and allow these modalities to to really play a role like music as you mentioned and uh yeah dj and i with the body work and 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 really just to to allow this this space or this maybe this potential plasticity that that occurs during these psychedelic experiences to to really be fertile ground maybe for, for, for making better choices about, uh, about life and, and, and their connectivity to things. Cause I think in, in the end, it's about, for me, it's always, it always comes back to this question that I get afterwards. It's like, I'm not alone. You know, I'm not alone in this. Yeah. That, I mean, I completely agree. And I think that even though the psychedelics are clearly doing something real, there's a real pharmacology there. I'm convinced like what we're tapping into, and this is what makes it one of the things that makes it so interesting. It's not special about psychedelics. I think it's like turning up the gain. It's like turning up the, the mm. likelihood, the probability to allow for a deeply meaningful experience, but it's qualitatively, it, it is, 
there is nothing special. Like these experiences people have with psychedelics, whether it's be quitting, you know, a, 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 an addiction, be it like coming to a realization how they've been dealing with their cancer, that they've actually been causing their own suffering by the, the level of obsession and, and, and not actually getting out and living life when they still can. You know, the, these are things that happen. I mean, there are people that have these epiphanies like with no drug. It happens all the time. It doesn't happen all the time within someone's life, but when you look across people and across time, like there's a psychologist, um, William Miller, that wrote a book about it, Quantum Change, just describing like not with drugs, just like people have these discrete changes in their life. I mean, and they're, they're recorded throughout our, they're embedded into our religious traditions, into our literature. Ebenezer Scrooge might be the best example, but there's like, you know, like these examples of people like really having these profound experiences where they check in and it changes them. And, and so like in the cancer study, so many people started to get better before <laughs> the, they even got the psilocybin. Now we, we still saw a big difference whether they got the big dose or the trivial dose first. So it was, you know, even more so with the psilocybin, but like the healing started happening beforehand. And so many people would say, like I've never really had that, that these levels of conversation, and part of that is the expectation created by the psychedelic. Because you're saying you might have the most frightening experience of your life, and it all could also be very meaningful. But we're going to be with you, and we're going to help you through it, and we're going to and and so it like it just creates this um, establishing operation that it's like this leap of faith effect. It's like okay, I'm willing to trust these people. I might, I might think that I'm dying and these are the people that are going to hold my hand. Like, okay, so I'm all in. And so then you're like able to open up and just, yeah, I think in, in, it, it goes along with that idea that like, I think nothing would, the processes that we're tapping into are, are not unique to psychedelics. In fact, sometimes people get what we're doing who have never taken a psychedelic and maybe don't have any interest they get it a lot more than sometimes the person that said, Oh yeah, I took a bunch of shrooms in college and they just, they don't understand the framework of really kind of like giving, going inward, giving themselves that space. Um, and if they're just, just viewing it from kind of a party perspective, you know, they don't really under the person who's never doesn't know anything about psychedelics and has never taken one. Somebody knows sometimes knows more of what we're talking about with this therapy. Um, Matt, so we know from uh, Timothy Leary, like set and setting are a huge part. And I see that in most of the conventional psilocybin therapy sessions, it's maybe laying down shades over the eyes, you know, in a room. I personally like to be outside moving and in nature. Uh, Tom and I like to explore actual movement and physicality as maybe a tool to navigate the psychedelic space um, and do you think uh, is there any research pointing to benefits of that I mean it is less controlled but then I think you know our, our nervous system evolved to navigate the environment and mm -hmm. that optic flow and richness and uh, we kind of have the embodied expression along with the journey um, so do you see that as a potential tool in um, in sessions in uh, therapeutic sessions yeah, yeah. I and, and this falls into that category 
that I was saying before, like we're using the same basic model from the mid 1950s. <laughs> we, you know, we have we haven't done those studies. We know from survey work, some of which I I've done, um, that many p people report extremely meaningful experiences when they're when they're in nature and when they're doing you know various things people get into flow states and they they're engaged in movement and you know even if that's just a you know a hike or if it's you know something more specific um yeah people make some claim and i i think there's something there and it may be that the there you know there, there, there's a kind of a famous book in the history of psychedelic therapy called the the varieties of psychedelic experience by uh, two authors in the late 60s masters in houston and it was a play on william james book the varieties of religious experience but they make the point that like there's not like one type of experience here there's a whole range and one of the distinctions even amongst even with the sense of unity which we found is so tends to be so predictive of, of long-term benefit um there can be an an extrovertive or are introvertive so an external or internal sense of unity so in nature people are more likely to have a sense of being one with <laughs> with nature you know um and then it, it's a different framing when one has their eyes closed and they kind of see the entire world within like they could go inside so deep like the, the depths of the universe are within them and, and that can be so you one can have these remarkable experiences in either direction so maybe there's nuance you know that maybe there's differential outcomes like in in terms of whether like that can be meaningful i have no doubt i mean i just think the the you know the examples and like you, know, you just conveyed are, are so convincing i'm sure something is there we need to get in to explore it more formally i mean i'd love to have um if if we really could have the research center we you know i'd like is you know for some sessions you might have a, a big session for a few hours and then you can open up the door and like you're in a beautiful you know wooded area you can actually this kind of happens uh, my friend katrin preller who's a, a neuroimaging scientist who's done a bunch of great work with psychedelics at the university of zurich they're they're at a little campus where within um a five minute walk and they do this with their patients they they walk up a, a a small mountain and you're looking over like lake zurich and the whole i mean it's just like absolutely i mean you're in in the swiss <laughs> you know like you know uh you're, you're, view, you're viewing this beautiful lake and this beautiful city and um the mountains uh so and 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 she reports people people really like that um but I think, you know, like what if we randomize people to have, you know, that during the whole session versus laying on a couch with the eye shades on, you know, hey, maybe it's better or maybe it's just maybe they're both good and they're, they're, they're good for different things. And maybe people are different. Maybe for you, you know, one for we could maybe we could figure out like hey, for you. Yeah, you need the couch session. And but this other person needs the they need to go to the mountains, you know. <laughs> Yeah, we're definitely down to to hold a to hold a breakout session at the at the expanded Hopkins Psychedelic Research Center for sure. <laughs> but Matt, I'm I'm just watching the clock here, and where are your time? I wonder if we could maybe ask another question each. Um, sure. The it's so interesting talking to you, someone who's so so deep in the in the pharmacology. 
uh, of psychedelic research, really cutting edge stuff uh, at a leading research, one of the leading research institutions in the world, but, but yet you still have the work and, and maybe this is maybe to tip the hat a little bit to, um, to your boss as well, Roland Griffiths, who's, who's really, I think, uh, not holding back this, uh, this sort of phenomenological uh, importance of the psychedelic experience as well. And the fact that it does have a deeply subjective um, aspect to it and, and, and really does allow for this um, maybe return to some sort of feeling of mystical and spiritual connection to, to whatever, right. To, to nature or to who people are. And I think it's, it's so humbling to, to hear you speak in this kind of a more of a, in a, a holistic realm in a way, rather than sort of this reductive idea about what this drug is potentially going to, to do this cause and effect. You know, it's like, a, for me, it's like a really, it's, it's a really, it's a sign that science uh, is really born out of mysticism itself. It's maybe, it's maybe the, the modern version. And then we're at this point now in time and history where we can actually create new models or new add-ons to make this science more beautiful, if you like, to, to speak a sort of more beautiful language of science and mysticism and, and, and allow psychedelics to really feed into this. And whether people want to dabble or not, that, that's really beside the point, but it just, it will allow for this, for this narrative and for this conversation to become, um, yeah, maybe more accepted and more awareness of, of this kind of conversation uh, and these, these beautiful chemicals uh, in mainstream society. So yeah, just, just thank you really for your, for your voice and for all of your work um, uh, on behalf of uh, yeah, myself and people that sort of follow my work as well, that I think the Hopkins uh, Institute and, uh, and various others as well is, uh, is, is just providing um, just magnitudes of, of, of voice and, and really sound sort of sharp, cutting edge and yet very sort of very relaxed and, and, and really continuing the, the psychedelic uh, voice in a very beautiful way. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. And uh, I feel a little guilty saying that because it's like, it's also a lot of fun. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, it, it's hard work too, but it's, uh, it's just, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, there's nothing I'd rather, I'd rather really focus on to study. So um, there's just so much to, to figure out, you know, and you get to sure. chat with really interesting people about interesting experiences. Like I never get tired of hearing people talk about these psychedelic experiences. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, well, well, I still got you. It's, I've always wondered, I mean, you're one of the pioneers in the psychedelic Renaissance research, right? And we've learned from the past. Um, do, do you feel pressure on uh not so much being a spokesperson but on presenting psychedelics in a certain light is it different uh when you're on these panels of experts behind closed doors talking about it um as opposed to like presenting it to a institution or a, a college because you don't see um you don't see the characters uh, in academia, like you did in the '60s, <laughs> with psychedelics, uh, we we've learned from it. Um, but it, but is there like that unwritten rule and that unspoken uh, kind of demeanor behind doing it a right way? Yeah, you know, and I and I think we're also, you know, you can also go too far with it. Um, 
the idea that like we've we've been so haunted by the ghost of Tim Leary, you know that. And to be clear, he was a fascinating guy and like had some amazing contributions. And like, yeah, probably wasn't yeah <laughs> wasn't the greatest thing to do to to yeah. Like he kind of went off the rails in terms of the academic uh, the academic track and um, could have exercised more caution in terms. Although he did sometimes you know, like, caution in terms of like recommending what that people do these things but um yeah you know so we you know you you try to be very clear one of the things i've done uh, i think it's a good thing is to really focus on risks and safety mitigation strategies so one of my first papers as as a, as a first author in the field was to to really review everything that we knew from that older era of research um and anything since on and what the risks are, what we can do to mitigate those, how we can safely do this in therapy and in research studies. Um, so I think we, you know, and always, as I sprinkled in earlier, like, you know, make the claim, you know, I'm, I don't encourage anyone to use this. These are powerful tools. They can come with risks. At the same time, I'm always, if people are using these things, I'm always fascinated and I've done research around this and I'm personally interested to hear their stories and what they, what they think. So it's like, um, I think that's a good level of like, you know, okay, always, you know, focus on the fact that like, yeah, there's powerful tools. They can, you know, they can come with risk. They do come with risk. Um, but you can also like get into a, a trap of like just taking yourself too seriously and just, uh, I don't know. I've tried to like over the last like several years, like at least if I have a long enough talk, you know, tell one or two jokes at the beginning, like psychedelic jokes, just to get people <laughs> loosened up, you know, it's like, because I don't know. And I think I dropped the tie for most of my talks like a few years back and just, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a Goldilocks there to, you know, this stuff is, I mean, it's fun to talk about. And like, we, we also can't like lose that, like <laughs> make it look so, <laughs> I mean, you have to bend over backwards and make psychedelics boring. <laughs> we don't want to do that, you know? So like you also, you want to convey how fascinating this is and how, how fun it is to like explore these, these things. And so there's, you know, there's a distance between, you know, Tim Leary on the one side and someone who just is just completely ridden with, anxiety and just is afraid to i don't know be themselves and to to speak about what they think is interesting with this stuff in the big picture and yeah you know so it's a i think like like most things in life there's a balance you know but there is a responsibility yeah you know i'm always mindful i get contacted by people that says like oh my god my son took this and that and he got screwed up and you know like yeah you know and I, I love the spirit in which you do present and lecture and that you have the jokes and you have the funny slide uh, pictures. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think you're doing it right. And yeah, I just wondered because there must be, I feel like there would be a lot of pressure because what you're doing is going to change the world undoubtedly. And you're doing it in such an authentic, honest, uh, humble, almost way, just uh, being yourself and uh, I think doing, doing really good work. So thank, uh, you, thank you. Yeah. Again. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Matt. And, uh, we'd love to have you on again and maybe we could talk about some of those experiences and, uh, and maybe you could talk about the, the latest research paper 
push to Hopkins on DMT as well. That will be interesting. Oh to yeah. About. Yeah. I'd love to do it again. Just let me know. Yeah. This has been really fun. Appreciate awesome. your time, Matt. Thanks All so right. much, Matt. Take care, Tom, DJ.